sermon in a series that we've been doing this summer called A Biblical Theology of Eating and Drinking. Uh, I see a couple of new faces amongst us this morning. Uh, if you haven't been here for that time, you can find the sermons online. But we did the first three sermons in a way that allows us to have a basic structure by which we can then kind of look at the scriptures and understand what the scripture has to say about this significant theme of eating and drinking. In sermon number one, we saw the gift given. God gives food and drink to mankind, to humanity. In sermon number two, we saw the gift abused, that we chose to eat of the, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and abused the good thing that God had given to us. And then in sermon number three, we saw the gift restored. And the idea of the gift restored was that in covenant, in his covenant of grace, God promises to continue to provide all that we need for life. In particular, many of the covenants articulate food as a provision that God will make for us to show that God gives us all that we need for life in this world. But in addition to the provision of food, we also saw in the gift restored that covenants include a covenant meal. And so beyond just merely saying, here's some food for you to have, even though you're sinners, the covenant meal is a way of symbolizing and showing and actualizing a fellowship restored with God, a relationship restored with God, an ability to get back to the table. So we looked at those things and they give us the three categories that are very helpful for understanding any number of things in Scripture, and those three categories are creation, fall, and redemption. You can apply them, as I just did, to the food, or as we did over the past couple of summers, you can see the same thing in clothing. You can see the same thing in a doctrine, a theology of place, as Scripture unfolds it as well. It is the story of how the covenant God relates to his covenant people, but we get to see it from these various angles to see how God draws it all together. So today we continue to look at this with this theme, with that foundation. Now loosely, as we continue on, what I'm going to do is look at the various instructions and examples that Scripture gives about eating and drinking and what it has to say about it. We'll do that over the weeks that follow in basically the order that Scripture gives us to them or presents us uh, with these ideas. And as you will have discerned already uh, by the Old Testament passage that was read for us from Leviticus chapter 11 and chapter 20, our theme today is the dietary laws. And I suspect that if you're familiar with the Bible, that's not surprising to you because you know the dietary laws are in Scripture, and if we're doing a biblical theology of eating and drinking, we're going to get pretty quickly to the dietary laws. So the passages in Scripture that really explain these laws are the one we read earlier from Leviticus, and then Deuteronomy 14. Those are the primary texts that kind of outline this food that either should be eaten or can be eaten or should not be eaten. But in order to help us see, if you will, the full scope of the story, we want to come to the New Testament, the New Covenant as well, and understand how the New Covenant approaches this exact issue that was so relevant in the life of Israel, in the life of God's Old Testament people. 
There are a variety of places that we could turn to for this, but I don't think there's any better than Acts 10 and Acts 11 and the story of Peter and Cornelius to help us see what is taking place here. Now, Acts 10 is a very long chapter. I'm not going to read it for us today. I've preached on it uh, a few years back. I would encourage you uh, that this afternoon around the table, uh, you, you finish up your lunch, read Acts chapter 10 together um, and just see the development of what we will see reported in Acts chapter 11. So the events of Acts chapter 10 raise some eyebrows and a report is given in Acts chapter 11 that kind of condenses the story. That's what I'm going to read for us now. This is the word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, uh, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, "Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter." He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Praise God. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for this day, this Pentecost to the Gentiles, the day of the Spirit falling upon Cornelius and his household and all who were gathered there becomes a day for us to celebrate as well. For you have continued that work that began that day, and you've drawn us to yourself. We give you thanks that we can be part of this feast. We have a seat at this table. And we pray now that as we're gathered here together, you would help us to understand your word well. Help us to understand how it progresses from old to new, and help us to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suspect that 
unless you are ethnically Jewish or were raised in a Jewish household, when you choose what to eat or when you choose what you're going to purchase, you don't spend a lot of time cross-referencing your shopping list that you've developed with Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14 and kind of asking yourself the question, wait, are the things on my list in accord with this or are the things on my list forbidden according to what is written there? Now you have various considerations, right? Various considerations when you purchase food. You might consider, do you like this particular food? Do you find this particular food to be tasty? Or maybe you consider, is this easy to prepare? Uh, or is it part of a heart-healthy diet? When the email came out for Meals for the Delices, it said, uh, meals that are good for a heart-healthy diet. So maybe you think about that when you're deciding what you're going to purchase. Or, or perhaps, does it fit within the constraints of your budget? Or you might think about other things. You might think about where the food is sourced. Is it organic? Is it local? How processed is that particular food? But with all of those things that you consider, you probably don't ask yourself the question, does it chew the cud? Is, is, the, is the foot cloven or not cloven? And when I'm eating insects, can, can I eat the ones that have the leg jointed above the foot or not? You probably don't think about those things at all when you go to the store. Nevertheless, God's people once had to pay very close attention to these things because they were a particular part of his holy law. It was the law of the king. And the king said, this is what I allow you to eat, and this is what I forbid. Will you listen? Will you listen to what I am telling you or not? Today, here are my questions for us today to kind of guide us through this discussion. Why were those laws put in place? And then, if they were in fact lifted in the New Testament, as I think we can see clearly, why were they lifted? In other words, why aren't we kosher? as a people. And then finally, are there any abiding lessons for us as we reflect on this theme of the laws that were given with respect to the diet? So, why are such laws in the Bible? Why that kind of minutia? I mean, let's be clear, you know this, I know this, that Scripture allows the main thing to be the main thing. And if you ask the question, what's the main thing with respect to the law of God? The answer is, of course, the law of love. You should love the Lord your God. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Describe for us how to do that in the Ten Commandments in particular, the moral law of God. What's most important? Things like the heart, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Why then? If those things are the main thing, why include the details about this dietary or this diet that the people should follow? And why include them at this point? At this point in Israel's history, recall, they're in the wilderness. God is providing them with manna from above, with quail, with water for them. And they're getting ready to enter into what is described by the Lord as a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So why? Now, perhaps, I want to address this right out of the, right out of the shoot here. Perhaps you have heard it taught or said, as I have, that the reason God did this was to protect and preserve his people. This was part of a healthy diet. There were diseases that could be included with some of these animals, and God was protecting his people even when his people didn't understand. Now, there may be something there. There may be something that is indeed healthy about this, but frankly, I'm going to reject that reasoning. There were peripheral benefits, perhaps, but it's not the point. Let me tell you why I'm going to reject that reasoning. I'm putting it right out front because it's the thing that may come to mind. It's what comes to mind often when we think of what you should eat or what you should not eat, and often with these stories. Why reject the point? First of all, I want to reject it because the Bible doesn't say anything about it. The Bible doesn't give that as a reason. And you would think that even without understanding, it would have been easy to say for God to say, I'm doing this because it's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for your diet and for your health. That's reason number one to reject it. Reason number two to reject it is that for those who study these things, not me in the kind of depth that I'm about to say, but it doesn't appear that the list holds completely. Yes, in some cases that may have in fact been the case, but there are some things that are allowed that actually, uh, or that aren't allowed that actually weren't that bad for you. And there are certainly other things that could have been restricted, things that were more poisonous. And so while the list may have parts in which that medical argument makes sense, it's not the main that's there at all. And the final reason is this, that I'm going to reject it, is because when we come to the new covenant and these dietary laws are lifted, we're left with a question. And the question is, did God not care about the health of people in the new covenant? It's a bigger family. Did he just kind of say, well, okay, whatever. Eat, eat whatever, everything's fine now. It seems inconsistent, in other words, to kind of get to that point and then say, all right, never mind, I'm not worried about health anymore. So for those reasons, I, I, I reject that as a reason for it. Um, let me then give you what I think are, from the text, three positive reasons why the dietary laws are included, and these aren't exhaustive, but I think you'll see how they all relate. When we read these laws, we're taken back, and this is reason number one, we're taken back to Genesis, and basically the idea of eat this, not that, right? That, that was kind of the focal point, the simple message of Genesis chapter 2, and then into Genesis 3 as well, but Genesis chapter 2, eat this, not that. And that's kind of what we have here in this list that is before us. It's admittedly a lot more complicated, right? Genesis was pretty open with the things you could eat. Just one tree, don't eat of that. This is much more complicated than that. And yet there is a simplicity to it. And the simplicity to it is this. It boils down to the same basic question, whether you're talking about Genesis 2 or whether you're talking about Leviticus chapter 11, the question is this, will you obey me or not? Will you listen to the decree of the king with respect to everything in life, including what you eat and what you don't eat? It's, in other words, a, a, an image of the original test. Now, we read this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the gift abused. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 8 how 
when the people of God were in the wilderness, we read that God tested their hearts, right? He gave them manna, he let them hunger, he gave them food to test their hearts, to see what was in their hearts, to see whether they would keep his commandments or not. And so when you come to the dietary laws, when you come to God saying, eat this, not that, you've got that basic question that is set in front of you. In other words, to say it this way, the dietary laws are a matter of the will. They're going to expose the will. Will you listen to me, or will you make the decision about what is good on your own? That's God's question that he has. Will we follow him? They are, in other words, a matter of holiness. Now, you saw how many times in what we read, or what Hope read for us, how the word holiness is used. I am the Lord who is holy. You are my people, and you should be holy as well. Now, let's say something here uh, early on. Holiness wasn't necessarily measured by the particular quality or the essence of the thing that was allowed or forbidden. That wasn't necessarily the issue that was attached to them. But as soon as God says, as soon as it comes from the mouth of God, don't eat that, do eat that, then it has moral weight to it. Right? We, we think of these as part of the ceremonial law. Fair enough, okay, we, get, we understand that idea. But they are moral as soon as God says, do this and don't do that. It's a question of holiness. Will you obey what I've said or will you not? The holiness is the emphasis of the text, and to approach God, to be in God's presence, requires holiness, expressed as a pervasive life of obedience, of orderliness, and of appropriateness. That's reason number one. God gives these laws to us for holiness. Reason number two is found in this idea that's embedded throughout the text that was read for us, the idea that is there in Acts chapter 10 and 11 as well, the idea of clean and unclean. These dietary laws that we have here are set in a rather large section of rules by which something is declared to be clean or unclean. Now this too, this idea of cleanness, takes us back to the book of Genesis and as early on as the story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 7, as Noah is gathering up the animals at the command of God, God instructs him in particular to take more of the clean animals. Now, prior to this, there's no written instruction about what is a clean animal and what is not a clean animal. And so there must have been some direct communication to Noah, not recorded for us, that helps us to see this idea of what is clean and what is unclean. And the reason that you take more of the clean animals is because when Noah comes out of the ark and is sacrificing and worshiping God, God wants clean animals for the sacrifice. So you have to have more of the clean animals if you're going to kill and sacrifice some of those clean animals. But these laws with respect to what is clean and what is unclean are sweeping in scope and they are dizzying in detail. And as Jesus so clearly teaches as he works through these things, they were demonstrative. They were symbolic. 
Now, again, did some of them have legitimate, clear reasons for being clean or unclean? Did they make sense, in other words, in terms of the health of the world? Of course they did. Of course they did. That's why you use them as a symbol, right? Symbols work really well with things that are kind of like what you're trying to symbolize. If things are completely different, that's not such a great symbol. But of course they had some practical value as well, but it's the symbolic value that is essential. Let me illustrate this. Let me illustrate it with an issue that comes up in the New Testament that leads to some of the things that are on the front of your bulletin, washing hands. Okay? Washing hands comes up as an issue, and washing hands is obviously related to eating. In the book of Exodus, we can see how priests were required to wash their hands. In the book of Leviticus, we can see how uh, people who had become unclean were also required as part of this to wash, to cleanse themselves. It was part of preparation, part of sanctification, being separated from the filth and from the dirtiness. You go to Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 asks the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And the answer, in part, at least the beginning of the answer, is he who has clean hands. So we roll into the New Testament, and the disciples are apparently at a meal at which, or for which, they did not wash their hands. And the Pharisees, the leaders watching what has taken place, come to Jesus, and they say to him, why don't your disciples wash their hands in accordance with the tradition of the elders. Now listen, when we were children, our parents told us we've been playing outside uh, to go and wash our hands before dinner, and good grief, ad nauseum, we've heard about washing our hands for the last year and a half. Whenever someone speaks, we've heard, wash your hands. But Jesus at this moment turns to them, and in response he says that to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. Matthew 15. How can that be? How can it be that eating with unwashed hands, which was a command, doesn't defile anyone? Because Jesus is trying to say, listen, it was a symbol. It was a symbol. Kids, wash your hands before you eat if you've been outside playing with stuff. But, but still, it's a symbol that Jesus is talking about. Just like this list of food, you need to be clean. That's what the symbol shows. And this list of food and all of these other rules should make something very clear to you and that is that on your own, you are not going to spend a lot of time clean. You're going to spend a lot of time unclean. You're going to touch stuff you're not supposed to touch. Things are going to happen to your body that are going to make you unclean. You're going to eat something that's going to make you unclean. You're unclean and you need cleansing. It's a symbol. Third reason for the dietary laws are found in the word uh, that's used in some of these texts here, the idea of differentiation of separation of distinctiveness. Two reasons were given for the, the gifting of these dietary laws. In Exodus chapter 11, the Lord says, it's because I brought you out of the land of Egypt that I'm giving you these laws. In Exodus chapter 20, it says, it's because I'm bringing you into a land in which there are a lot of other nations that are around that I'm giving you to these lands. So in light of where you were and in light of where you're going, I'm giving to you these laws that pertain to what you should and what you shouldn't eat. I want you to be a holy people, which is to say a distinct people. Now, over the past couple of weeks, what we have seen is that when you eat, 
and when you eat with others, you are partaking of the same things, and therefore you begin to partake of one another when you eat. There is a fellowship that is created, there's a bond, there is a unity that is created in the very act of eating. And God says, listen, I've seen the customs of these other nations, and I don't want you to be like them. So, I don't want you to eat the way they eat, and I don't want you to eat with them, because I don't want you picking up their customs in your life. I want you separated as my people. I want you distinct. So, Leviticus 11, verse 47 that we looked at, to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. And then if you flip it over to uh, Leviticus 20, you see it in all of the verses. It's, it says to them, I'm the Lord who has separated you from the peoples. Therefore, you shall separate the clean from the unclean. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you. Uh, to differentiate uh, is to separate. It's the same Hebrew word, the same idea that is in all of them. The dietary laws are thus part of what made Israel Israel and other nations not Israel. They're part of who they were. So there you go. There are the three reasons that the dietary laws were put in place for holiness, for cleanliness, and for distinctiveness, okay, that you might be a separate people. So those are pretty good things. Why then, why then are they removed? Why are they removed? These laws were part and parcel of Jewish life. They were woven deeply into the fabric of what you did every day, right? You eat every day, and you get this idea of, of being forged as a community because you eat the same things as one another, and you don't eat other things that other people do eat, and so it forges this identity but the fact that the dietary laws come to an end is frankly, arguments notwithstanding, one of the clearest teachings of the New Testament. If anything's clear in the New Testament, the fact that these laws come to an end is one of the things that is abundantly clear. You can look at it in various Gospels. We can consider the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I put the Mark 7 part of it at least on the front of your bulletins. Jesus speaking. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods to be clean. To Paul, who makes it clear that we've come to the end of the do not eat, do not touch regulations, though those are no longer in force, to that extraordinary passage that I read for us from Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 10 and 11, where Peter is called in a vision to rise, kill, and eat all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. It's over. It has come to an end. And we want to ask the question, how? Why did this take place? Why could you, as the people of God, get up this morning and enjoy your bacon? and enjoy your sausage before you came to church today and you didn't probably feel guilty about partaking of those things. 
I want to give you the answer to this, and I want to structure the answer in exactly the way I structured the positive reasons. Here's the answer. Someone passed the test. You can eat because someone passed the test. Eve didn't pass. Adam didn't pass. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, they all failed. But someone passed the test. Someone kept the commands of God perfectly. And I'll give you a hint. It's the one who said, not my will, but thine be done. It's the one who said, it's, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me who decides what's good and what's appropriate. Your will be done. Hint number two. It's the one who said, I have food you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do according to all that he has commanded to accomplish all of his work. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord Jesus Christ, and his perfect obedience to the Father changes things. Why have the dietary laws been ended? Answer, holiness has been accomplished. Holiness has been accomplished. Answer number two, cleansing has been accomplished. The blood of Christ accomplished what a hundred laws about clean and unclean, about foods and diseases and regulations. They could only symbolize those things. His blood can cleanse what food couldn't reach. The heart, right? That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, all of this stuff that you're eating with your mouth, it's going through, through your stomach, through your intestines, and out of your body. He says it doesn't touch the heart. The heart is the issue that I'm trying to get at here, and the blood of Christ cleanses inside out. And that's why the promise of forgiveness was what the promise of forgiveness was. There's a cleansing that takes place by the blood of Christ that comes inside out of our lives. And when that takes place, there's no need for a symbol. You don't need the symbol anymore when you have the reality. Reason number three. Because holiness is accomplished, and two, cleansing is accomplished, then three, a seat at the table has been opened. Not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. They level an accusation against Peter, right? They say to Peter, you ate with them. You, you ate with the uncircumcised. And Peter responds. He gets it. He understands. He gets it. He says, what was I supposed to do? And he explains it to them. Listen, I received a vision. And... As a matter of fact, the guy's house that I went to, he also received a vision. I came to the home, and I preached Christ to them, and they were filled. What were they filled with? The same food you were eating? No, no, no. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's the significance here. They were filled with the Spirit, says Peter. They believed in Christ. They were filled with the Spirit. They were filled with Christ. They were filled with the Spirit. That's what we were filled with as well. Therefore, get the point, we're partakers of one another. We're partners with one another because now we've been filled with the same thing. And so, and so, you can eat together. Jew and Gentile can sit down and eat together. And Peter gets it. It's hard for him, right? I mean, we could read Galatians and we could see it's hard. It's going to be a struggle for him to work this out in his life because his life is used to kind of not doing that and not partaking of these things. But in what we read together, uh, ch verse 12 of chapter 11, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. The laws were about distinction. Making no distinction. Or to go back to chapter 10 and see how he records it in the moment as it's taking place. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And that for us is like, oh, well, well, of course God shows no partiality. For Peter, that was stunning. Stunning that that should be the case. In other words, it's an open table with respect to ethnicity. Faith and the obedience of faith, those are now, if you will, the lines of demarcation. Those are the lines of differentiation. Faith and the obedience of faith, not food, not your blood, not your race, not your parents, not your grandparents. The dietary laws served their purpose and as a result, they are done. Is there, though, anything for us as the people of God that we can kind of look at this and take away from that whole episode and the whole story? There is. There is. First and foremost, and I kind of do this every time with this, first and foremost, what we can take away from this is the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, first two verses, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. And then a couple of verses later, it says that a nation that you don't know is going to run a nation that you don't know is going to try and beat you to the table and eat what is good because the way has now been opened. And so, lo and behold, the dietary laws, which in the first place might seem so initially irrelevant to us, are that which, amongst other things, God uses to say, get to the table. Come. Come. There's a, there's a seat for you at this table. And so if you're here today, if you're here today and a stranger to Christ, a stranger to the people of God, the invitation is out there. The summons is out there. Come to the table and partake of the feast. But there's a couple of other things for us as well. That's first and foremost. Another thing that's out there is the call to holiness. Holiness in the new covenant has, if anything, intensified and not diminished. The removal of the symbol, which is to say in this case the dietary laws themselves, exposes us to a focus on the substance, and the substance of holiness is a much more intense struggle than the symbol for holiness 
would have been. Does that make sense? Does it make sense to us? The call to a pervasive holiness remains in all of life. Listen, here's the reality. The, the, the Lord has taken away the symbol, and what taking away the symbol does is exposes those things that are the substance of it. Jesus articulates them. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. What would you rather do? Which would be easier? If I told you no bacon, or if I told you work on these? Put these aside. These, these are unclean. Well, the answer is pretty obvious, right? right? The external, the symbol is much easier than the thing itself. But with the removal of the symbol, now we got the heart of the matter at hand. Those are the things that I want you to pursue with respect to holiness. And Paul picks up on exactly this idea in Corinthians, and he says to him, listen, with respect to holiness, you have to be careful out there. You have to be careful with whom you are in partnership. Because when you mix things, and that's the idea here, when you mix things together, you're in danger. You're in danger of partnering with unholiness, and you better be careful when you're doing that because there's danger around that. So holiness is still a call for us. Third, but related, is that while there's no longer a separation, a differentiation in the kingdom that is centered on ethnicity, we still live in a world that is hostile to the king. Egypt ended up being hostile to the king, and of course the nations around Israel became hostile to the king and his law. And therefore, we are still called to be what the King James Version so wonderfully calls a peculiar people. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're called to be a peculiar people, and we always will be in this world. We not, may not be peculiar because of what we eat or don't eat with respect to others, although we may make many decisions that are related to the Lord with respect to our diet. Nevertheless, our peculiarity exists. Think, for example, of Daniel. Think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 and the peculiarity that he shows in saying, listen, could you just give us a diet of something else? And it doesn't pay off. If it doesn't work out, we'll go back. We'll eat all the other stuff as well. But in diet and then in what they will or will not worship and bow down to, they show their peculiarity. While at the same time, actively engaging in the affairs of Babylon in a way that ends up being a good thing for the rulers of the day. They were in the world and not of it. And in a sense, this whole idea of food and being distinct and yet being part of is part of that discussion. How do you be in the world and not of it? A call that remains, of course, for the people of God. Fourth and finally then this, in terms of what, did this, what does this have for us today? Enjoy the freedom that you have with respect to food. Enjoy it. Uh, I'm going home in a few minutes. We're going to have paella. And in that paella, there's going to be some shrimp and some scallops and things like that. Enjoy the freedom that you have been given, the taste, the variety. Enjoy that God is treating you with maturity. With maturity. Okay, there was a time when the people of God were under the law as a tutor, as a guardian. The Westminster Confession of Faith 
talks about Israel as the church underage. And when you're underage, kids, your parents tell you what to eat. They say, eat this and don't eat that because they know what's good for you and they're trying to direct you appropriately. As you become of age, you get to decide that. You, you, there's a maturity that's granted. Decide what you will do. And so enjoy the maturity, but, but that freedom does not mean that anything goes or that eating is now irrelevant to the life of faith. The scriptures would say it this way, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. All things are lawful. That may be true, if that was a slogan from the Corinthian church, but not all things are profitable. Not all things are helpful. I don't want to be ruled by anything. And so, you have to use that freedom well. There are any number of ways to eat or drink in ways that either dishonor the Lord or glorify the Lord. There are issues of hospitality, of sharing, of tithing, of what are you doing about the poor, of moderation, of work, of the body itself. Some of these things are what we're going to consider in weeks to come. The, the point isn't here, well, psh, go ahead, do whatever you want. Yes, you're free, but use your freedom well and thoughtfully. So for now, go home and eat. Give thanks to God. Enjoy your freedom. Share your table with those who have never heard as you are able and share Christ with them as well. Remembering this from Paul, 1 Timothy 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this freedom that you've purchased for us. We thank you for the holiness yours that you've granted to us. We thank you for the cleansing, the forgiveness of our sins by your blood that covers the transgressions of our hearts. And we pray that you would help us to eat well, to eat what is good, to feast upon you, to feast upon the gospel and to invite others to come to that same feast as well. We pray this, Jesus, in your